Book Two, Sections Twenty Six through Twenty Eight of King Cole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. King Cole by Upton Sinclair. Book Two, The Serfs of King Cole, Section Twenty Six. At moments, in the midst of this confusion, Hal found himself trying to recall who had worked in Number One among the people he knew. He himself had been employed in number two, so he had naturally come to know more men in that mine. But he had known some from the other mine, old Rafferty for one, and Mary Burke's father for another, and at least one of the members of his Czech Wayman group, Zamirowski. Hal saw in a sudden vision the face of this patient little man, who smiled so good-naturedly while Americans were trying to say his name and old Rafferty, with all his little Rafferties, and his piteous efforts to keep the favor of his employers, and poor Patrick Burke, whom Hal had never seen sober, doubtless he was sober now, if he was still alive. Then in the crowd Hal encountered Jerry Minetti, and learned that another man who had been down was Ferenzina, the Italian whose Fonciula had played with him and yet another was Judas Apostolicus, having taken his thirty pieces of silver with him into the death-trap. People were making up lists, just as Hal was doing, by asking questions of others. These lists were subject to revision, sometimes under dramatic circumstances. You saw a woman weeping, with her apron to her eyes, Suddenly she would look up, give a piercing cry, and fling her arms about the neck of some man. As for Hal, he felt as if he were encountering a ghost when suddenly he recognized Patrick Burke standing in the midst of a group of people. He went over and heard the old man's story, how there was a Dago fellow who had stolen his timbers, and he had come up to the surface for more, so his life had been saved, while the timber thief was down there still a judgment of providence upon mine miscreants. Presently Hal asked if Burke had been to tell his family. He had run home, he said, but there was nobody there. So Hal began pushing his way through the throngs, looking for Mary, or her sister Jenny, or her brother Tommy. He persisted in this search, although it occurred to him to wonder whether the family of a hopeless drunkard would appreciate the interposition of providence in his behalf. He encountered Olson, who had had a narrow escape, being employed as a surface man near the hoist. All this was an old story to the organizer, who had worked in mines since he was eight years old, and had seen many kinds of disaster. He began to explain things to Hal in a matter-of-fact way. The law required a certain number of openings to every mine, also an escape way with ladders by which men could come out but it cost good money to dig holes in the ground. At this time the immediate cause of the explosion was unknown, but they could tell it was a dust explosion, by the clouds of coke dust, and no one who had been into the mine and seen its dry condition would doubt what they would find when they went down and traced out the force and its effects. They were supposed to do regular sprinkling, but in such matters the bosses used their own judgment. Hal was only half listening to these explanations. The thing was too raw and too horrible to him. 
What difference did it make whose fault it was? The accident had happened, and the question was now how to meet the emergency. Underneath Olson's sentences he heard the cry of men and boys being asphyxiated in dark dungeons. He heard the wailing of women, like a surf beating on a distant shore, or the faint, persistent accompaniment of muted strings. Oh, my man! Oh, my man! They came upon Jeff Cotton again. With half a dozen men to help him, he was pushing back the crowd from the pit mouth and stretching barbed wire to hold them back. He was none too gentle about it, Hal thought. But doubtless women are provoking when they are hysterical. He was answering their frenzied questions. Yes, yes, we're getting a new fan. We're doing everything we can, I tell you. We'll get them out. Go home and wait. But, of course, no one would go home. How could a woman sit in her house, or go about her ordinary tasks of cooking or washing, while her man might be suffering asphyxiation under the ground? The least she could do was to stand at the pit-mouth, as near to him as she could get. Some of them stood motionless, hour after hour, while others wandered through the village streets, asking the same people, over and over again, if they had seen their loved ones. Several had turned up, like Patrick Burke. There seemed always a chance for one more. End of section 26 Section 27 In the course of the afternoon, Hal came upon Mary Burke on the street. She had long ago found her father and seen him off to O'Callaghan's to celebrate the favors of Providence. Now Mary was concerned with a graver matter. Number two mine was in danger. The explosion in number one had been so violent that the gearing of the fan of the other mine, nearly a mile up the canyon, had been thrown out of order. So the fan had stopped and when someone had gone to Alec Stone, asking that he bring out the men, Stone had refused. "'What do ye think he said?' cried Mary. "'What do ye think? Damn the men! Save the mules!' Hal had all but lost sight of the fact that there was a second mine in the village, in which hundreds of men and boys were still at work. "'Wouldn't they know about the explosion?' he asked. "'They might have heard the noise,' said Mary, "'but they'd not know what it was, "'and the bosses won't tell them till they've got out the mules.' "'For all that he had seen in North Valley, "'Hal could hardly credit that story. "'How do you know it, Mary?' "'Young Rovetta just told me. "'He was there and heard it with his own ears.' "'He was staring at her. "'Let's go and make sure,' he said, "'and they started up the main street of the village.' On the way they were joined by others, for already the news of this fresh trouble had begun to spread. Jeff Cotton went past them in an automobile, and Mary exclaimed, "'I told ye so! When ye see him go and ye know there's dirty work to be done!' They came to the shaft-house of Number 2, and found a swarm of people, almost a riot. Women and children were shrieking and gesticulating, threatening to break into the office and use the mine telephone to warn the men themselves. And here was the camp-marshal driving them back. Hal and Mary arrived in time to see Mrs. David, whose husband was at work in number two, 
shaking her fist in the marshal's face and screaming at him like a wildcat. He drew his revolver upon her, and at this Hal started forward. A blind fury seized him. He would have thrown himself upon the marshal. But Mary Burke stopped him, flinging her arms about him and pinning him by main force. "'No, no!' she cried. "'Stay back, man! Do you want to get killed?' He was amazed at her strength. He was amazed also at the vehemence of her emotion. She was calling him a crazy fool, and names even more harsh. "'Have ye no more sense than a woman, running into the mouth of a revolver like that?' The crisis passed in a moment, for Mrs. David fell back, and then the marshal put up his weapon. But Mary continued scolding Hal, trying to drag him away. "'Come on now, come out of here!' "'But, Mary, we must do something!' "'Ye can do nothing, I tell ye. Ye'd ought to have sense enough to know it. I'll not let ye get yeself murdered. Come away now!' And half by force and half by cajoling she got him farther down the street. He was trying to think out the situation. Were the men in number two really in danger?' Could it be possible that the bosses would take such a chance in cold blood? And right at this moment, with the disaster in the other mind before their eyes? He could not believe it, and meantime Mary, at his side, was declaring that the men were in no real danger, it was only Alec Stone's brutal words that had set her crazy. "'Don't ye remember the time when the air course was blocked before, and ye helped to get up the mules yeself?' You thought nothing of it then, and tis the same now. They'll get everybody out in time." She was concealing her real feelings in order to keep him safe. He let her lead him on, while he tried to think of something else to do. He would think of the men in number two. They were his best friends, Jack David, Tim Rafferty, Resmock, Androkulos, Klowowski. He would think of them, in their remote dungeons, breathing bad air, becoming sick and faint, in order that mules might be saved. He would stop in his tracks, and Mary would drag him on, repeating over and over, "'Ye can do nothing, nothing!' And then he would think, what could he do? He had put up his best bluff to Jeff Cotton a few hours earlier, and the answer had been the muzzle of the marshal's revolver in his face. All he could accomplish now would be to bring himself to Cotton's attention, and be thrust out of camp forthwith. End of section 27 Section 28 They came to Mary's home, and next door was the home of the Slav woman, Mrs. Zamboni, about whom in the past she had told him so many funny stories. Mrs. Zamboni had had a new baby every year for sixteen years, and eleven of these babies were still alive. Now her husband was trapped in number one, and she was distracted, wandering about the streets with the greater part of her brood at her heels. At intervals she would emit a howl like a tortured animal, and her brood would take it up in various timbres. Hal stopped to listen to the sounds, but Mary put her fingers into her ears and fled into the house. Hal followed her and saw her fling herself into a chair and burst into hysterical weeping. 
and suddenly Hal realized what a strain this terrible affair had been upon Mary. It had been bad enough to him, but he was a man, and more able to contemplate sights of horror. Men went to their deaths in industry and war, and other men saw them go and inured themselves to the spectacle. But women were the mothers of these men. It was women who bore them in pain, nursed them and reared them with endless patience. Women could never become inured to the spectacle. Then, too, the women's fate was worse. If the men were dead, that was the end of them, but the women must face the future, with its bitter memories, its lonely and desolate struggle for existence. The women must see the children suffering, dying by slow stages of deprivation. Hal's pity for all suffering women became concentrated upon the girl beside him. He knew how tender-hearted she was. She had no man in the mine, but some day she would have, and she was suffering the pangs of that inexorable future. He looked at her, huddled in her chair, wiping away her tears with the hem of her old blue calico. She seemed unspeakably pathetic, like a child that has been hurt. She was sobbing out sentences now and then, as if to herself, "'Oh, the poor women, the poor women! Did ye see the face of Mrs. John Otch? She jumped into the smoking pit-mouth if they'd let her.' "'Don't suffer so, Mary,' pleaded Hal, as if he thought she could stop. "'Let me alone,' she cried. "'Let me have it out!' And Hal, who had had no experience with hysteria, stood helplessly by. "'There's more misery than I ever knew there was,' she went on. "'Tis everywhere ye turn, a woman with her eyes burnin' with sufferin', wonderin' if she'll ever see her man again, or some mother whose lad may be dyin' and she can do nothin' for him.' "'And neither can you do anything, Mary,' Hal pleaded again. "'You're only sorrowing yourself to death.' "'Ye say that to me?' she cried. "'And when ye were ready to let Jeff Cotton shoot ye "'because you were so sorry for Mrs. David? "'No, the sights here nobody can stand.' "'He could think of nothing to answer. "'He drew up a chair and sat by her in silence, "'and after a while she began to grow calmer "'and wiped away her tears "'and sat gazing dully through the doorway "'into the dirty little street. "'Hal's eyes followed hers.' There were the ash heaps and tomato cans. There were two of Mrs. Zamboni's bedraggled brood poking with sticks into a dump heap, looking for something to eat, perhaps, or for something to play with. There was the dry, waste grass of the roadside, grimy with coal dust, as was everything else in the village. What a scene! And this girl's eyes had never a sight of anything more inspiring than this. Day in and day out, all her life long, she looked at this scene. Had he ever for a moment reproached her for her black moods? With such an environment, could men or women be cheerful? Could they dream of beauty, aspire to heights of nobility and courage, to happy service of their fellows? There was a miasma of despair over this place. It was not a real place. It was a dream place, a horrible, distorted nightmare. It was like the black hole in the ground which haunted Hal's imagination, with men and boys at the bottom of it, 
dying of asphyxiation. Suddenly it came to Hal. He wanted to get away from North Valley, to get away at all costs. The place had worn down his courage. Slowly, day after day, the sight of misery and want, of dirt and disease, of hunger, oppression, despair, had eaten the soul out of him, had undermined his fine structure of altruistic theories. Yes, he wanted to escape, to a place where the sun shone, where the grass grew green, where human beings stood erect and laughed and were free. He wanted to shut from his eyes the dust and smoke of this nasty little village, to stop his ears to that tormenting sound of women wailing, Oh, mein man! Oh, mein man! He looked at the girl, who sat staring before her, bent forward, her arms hanging limply over her knees. Mary, he said, you must go away from here. It's no place for a tender-hearted girl to be. It's no place for any one. She gazed at him dully for a moment. It was me that was telling you to go away, she said at last. Ever since she came here I've been saying it. Now I guess you know what I mean. Yes, he said, I do, and I want to go. But I want you to go, too. Do you think twould do me any good, Joe? she asked. Do you think twould do me any good to get away? Could I ever forget the sights I've seen this day? Could I ever have any real, honest happiness anywhere after this? He tried to reassure her, but he was far from reassured himself. How would it be with him? Would he ever feel that he had a right to happiness after this? Could he take any satisfaction in a pleasant and comfortable world, knowing that it was based upon such hideous misery? His thoughts went to that world, where careless, pleasure-loving people sought gratification of their desires. It came to him suddenly that what he wanted more than to get away was to bring those people here, if only for a day, for an hour, that they might hear this chorus of wailing women. End of section 28